Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, I am not Pastor Joel Ellis. Um, and I promised to act my age this morning. Well, I promised to act my outward age this morning. Um, I'm very thankful for the opportunity. I was trying to count up, but you know, I can't remember. I think this is my fourth time of speaking at family camp. First time goes way back. Some of you are old enough to remember Canyon Meadows days. And I was in Northern California at that time, but they invited me to come down and speak. And then I think three times, or this would be the third time up here. Um, when I saw the email that many of us got about uh, Pastor Joel's son and his medical problems, I, well, first of all, I said it for Joel and his family, but then I thought, since I'm scheduled to be there and speaking evening, maybe I ought to make the offer to uh, fill in if you wanted it, but then I thought, well, that'd be presumptuous, I shouldn't do that. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a call from Mark Schroeder asking if I would do just that. I'm just gonna move this down a little bit because it's right between me and some of you. Um, we're gonna be studying the book of Job. Uh, even that is kind of interesting. You know, if you go to Barnes and Noble at this time of year, you go in and there's the table there for uh, great summer beach reads. The book of Job is not on the list of summer beach reads. Hey, what are you reading there? Oh, I'm reading Job. Oh, yeah, what's it about? Oh, misery and suffering. Great. They move away from you on the beach. But, considering, and of course, Job is all about the providence of God and the mysteries of the providence of God. Um, I wasn't scheduled, then I'm scheduled, then I have to think of what do I have that's fairly fresh in my mind that would fit for a setting like this, and I thought about messages that I had given at Bayview on Joe's in light of the COVID year, um, and now I'm here and you are here, and uh, Stacy Nelson offered a lovely prayer at the morning prayer time for all of us, all of you, who are hurting badly, some of you in a way that makes COVID look like a walk in the park. And so to think again about how God, and you've had this happen on Sundays, haven't you? You walked into church, maybe you were expecting to worship God and, and hear a sermon, you thought it would be um, Edifying, hoped it would be. The pastor prepares. He's thinking about a whole congregation of people that are similar and different, but somehow God connects with you in a way that just kind of knocks your socks off. It's like, whoa, God was really speaking to me. And that's been my prayer that um, given the sort of patchwork nature of this whole affair of the providence of God, He wants me to speak on His behalf. To some of you, I hope it will be beneficial for all of us, but maybe God will find you with a word of comfort and of understanding that you really need. Um, COVID, as we keep observing over and over and over again, has changed our lives in many ways. But, you know, on the Richter scale of social and individual suffering, there are a whole lot of things that are way worse than COVID has turned out to be. Parenthesis, unless you've lost a loved one. And uh, many of us have either 
personal friends or relatives in our extended family. I mean, I was even thinking about you young people. You know, we read these statistics about the rise in suicides among young adults, and I wonder how many of you are directly connected with someone who has so despaired of a future of any hope that they have taken their own life. So I'm honored and so thankful no ill to the Ellis family, but I'm glad to have this opportunity to bring this material to you. Um, because it started off life as sermons, well, not really, because I taught it in other settings. Although, again, I'm thinking, you know, this is not a book that a young preacher ought to read. You can do it. You can study the commentaries. Uh, you can uh, argue with the exegetical points. Um, and you could faithfully proclaim God's word, but those of you who are in the upper reaches of your life and experience, Job just resonates more and more deeply, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So um, I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for us. Anyway, started off to be sermons, and you know, <laughs> when the preacher's preaching a sermon, when the sermon's over, the sermon's over. Now. As a listener, you may wonder, when is this sermon going to be over? But the preacher knows when he gets to the end of his outline, he's done. But here at family camp, you know, we've got these scheduled periods. And some of these talks might be a little under the allotted time. Probably not, but you could hope. And then others might stretch. So I'm going to reserve the right to bleed from one session into another a little bit. And I'll tell you, but we'll talk about it tomorrow morning. I've already screwed up the outline, so we're going to have to fix that. If you're inveterate note-takers and you're going to follow the outline, I messed it up. So um, those of you who know me well from Bayview, bulletin errors are one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> so let's open our Bibles to the book of Job. We're not going to read the whole book of Job, although if you want to do it on your own, you know, the other pastors would probably think he's going to preach the book of Job in seven and a half messages. <laughs> Silly fellow. But we'll look at the first uh, opening verses here, and then we'll pray together. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the peoples of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Lord, we remember 
that when the people heard the voice of Jehovah on Mount Sinai, they begged not to hear it directly, to hear it through a mediator, and that mediator was Moses. We are not standing at an earthly Mount Sinai hearing a voice audibly that cracks the rocks in pieces. Otherwise, we would say, don't let us hear your word directly. We do have a mediator, one far greater than Moses, and a mediating spirit sent by the exalted Lord Jesus. And now you may speak to us very inaudibly in the recesses of our hearts, but we pray that it will come with an even greater power than the ministry of the Old Covenant, a ministry that proved to be one of condemnation and death, for now we live in the ministry, under the ministry of glory, of Christ and the power of the Spirit. I pray for all of us, starting with me, that we would hear and draw strength, understanding, comfort, courage, endurance from the word that you have for us this week. But I do pray for those that you know, and we may know some of our friends here at camp who are, who are hurting deeply. Will you give them a special double grace from your word this week? We know you can do it. You've done it for us so many times in the past. And we pray that you would do it for us again afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll look in detail, well, some detail, uh, at this introduction uh, as we get into the backstory. But I, I want us this morning to start not with Joe, but with James. All of us, at one time or another, have considered the words of James in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. And we've said, James, you've got to be kidding. And way down deep in our heart of hearts, where we don't dare to say it, we have to say, God, you've got to be kidding. Count it all joy when you are put through the ringer, when you're torn piece by piece, when those that you love and devote yourself to fall apart or die. Count it all joy. I can't do it. And that kind of response that wells up within us is so natural. We may be ashamed of it theologically. We may try to suppress it in our piety, but it's there. How can James say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? And it goes on to explain why, in terms that would very easily be descriptive of Job's experience and the book of Job. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised 
to those who love him. We have in the book of Job perhaps the most vivid and sustained example of the truthfulness of James' words. As a matter of fact, James, as much as any other New Testament author, uh, certainly like his brother Jesus, has been schooled in the wisdom of the Old Covenant. He's read Job over and over and over again. He's internalized it in his own experience, as well as what's there in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and in Song of Solomon. He's sung the Psalms that reflect the wisdom of God, and he's lived out his own experience. And that's why he can say, brothers, sisters, when you fall into trials of various kinds, like Job's, count it joy. Because God is doing a blessed thing for you, whether you realize it or not. James knows a lot more than Job did. And you and I know a lot more than James or Job did. For we have the, the completed canon, the whole of God's scripture, and we've had the opportunity, many of us through a lifetime, of reading and internalizing these precious words of God. But for Job, it was a very different story. And he's the one that lived these experiences. For Job, what James says is the end of the story, not the beginning. He has to learn through his own experience, through his own questions, his own doubts, his own fears, his own arguments with his counselors and friends, his own challenges to the Lord God himself what the ultimate outcome is going to be to count it all joy because he went through trials of various kinds. And that kind of gives us then the theme of the book as I'm going to present it at least and the theme for this week, faith growing through affliction. Job isn't mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, but he could certainly be in there. Someone who begins as a man of faith, that's how we're introduced to him in these opening verses, but through his life experience, he, his, his faith is stretched, it's deepened, his understanding begins to grow, certainly our understanding of his situation grows, and through that whole process, the endurance, the patience, the courage that we talked about with the kids last night, uh, is part of the fruit of that. So that's kind of where we're going to go, God willing, in our studies this week. This morning, in this first talk, I want to start with a few preliminary introductory thoughts, which I think will be helpful for us as orientation to the, the book, the storyline, as we get into it. So first of all, let's think about why it is that readers for thousands of generations have been gripped by the abiding appeal of a book like Job. It seems so immediately relevant to anyone who reads it. Even non-believers like the book of Job. It resonates with them, even though they miss most of the point of what the book is all about. Why is that? Well, we can think of several reasons. First of all, obviously, suffering is universal. Everyone suffers in one way or another at one time or another. This world has been 
rightly described as a veil of tears. There's a wonderful hymn in the Trinity hymnal, I think it's in the Psalter hymnal too, uh, by Margaret Clarkson, who herself was no stranger to a lifetime of physical pain as well as the mental anguish that goes along with it. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. How many of you know that hymn? I mean, you've sung it. All right, we're going to have to sing that. If I'm short in this session, we'll sing it afterwards. But verse 3 says this, O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain. The sovereign Lord of human pain. Transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evil overruling, as none but conqueror could, your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Those are rich and wonderful words of comfort. Or I was thinking of another recent anthem by Andrew Peterson. Some of you know, Is He Worthy? And the first line is, Do you feel the world is broken? We do. It's broken in so many different ways. And, and I hope you're thinking about some of the brokenness in your own world right now. Again, we've had a lot of strange and unusual experiences during the last year plus under the, the COVID threat and the COVID restrictions. When I think back to the beginning of 2020, uh, in the United States, COVID was barely on the radar screen yet, and my dear friend of over 40 years, George Scipione, was stricken with cancer, and he was gone in a month. And another longtime friend, Willie Winnick, uh, died later that January. And uh, so it was a bad year before COVID ever even surfaced. I've had other friends who have perished from COVID, an elder in my previous church, who finally succumbed after weeks in the hospital. And then I hear people say, you know, this COVID thing is all a hoax. Well, it's only a hoax if you don't get it or if you don't die from it. But there are covenant children that who have, who have walked away from the Lord and every day when a faithful parent wakes up, that's the first sorrow of their heart and the first prayer from their lips. Again, maybe you've had peers who have given up their lives voluntarily. Maybe you've gone through a separation or a divorce that you didn't want and you didn't deserve and it was crushing. And you may put on a smile and you may be able momentarily to push it back, but if somebody looks close, they can see the tears in your heart. And I could just ask you, what did I miss? What did I forget? What am I not aware of? So let's ask God to, even if it's a little wound opening, let's let him do that so that we can get even a deeper healing from the word of God. We cut to the chase too quickly. You know, I was saying to someone the other day, I 
again, it was a report of a, of a sorrow, of a disappointment. And, and we can say, because it's true, well, the Lord has his purpose in this. That's the right answer. But it just sometimes sounds like such a cliche. Unless you've learned how deep and profound that little statement is. When I was in seminary, one of my best professors of theology said, let me give you the most profound theological statement I've ever heard. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, one of the most profoundly comforting messages is God has his plan in your suffering, and it's a good plan. T.S. Eliot said, we shall not cease from exploration, but the end of all of our exploring will be to come back to where we first began and to know it for the first time. I love that. Our life in Christ is a circle, isn't it? Or as one writer put it, it's like a spiral staircase. So we're on one level, we're going around over the same material again and again, but as we learn and grow, or maybe we should make it go this way, we go deeper and deeper, and so the book becomes more and more resonant, more and more powerful. And you know, you see those old, tough saints, I'm not going to say who they are because that would be insulting, they're like rocks, and inwardly they know how weak they are. But outwardly, they look to us observing like nothing can move this saint. They are holding fast. And they are because they've been taught that God has that good purpose. And it deepens and it extends and it becomes stronger through the years. So a discussion of the theme of suffering is always relevant. I mean, I guess unless you've lived a really happy childhood, never done anything wrong, never had a spanking, never been sent to your room, never been told to eat your vegetables, you might say, life is good. I, I, I'm fine here. But you don't have to live very long before you realize that suffering is the common lot of humanity. Another reason why this book resonates with people is that it's a literary creation of such power and eloquence. It deals so vividly, and, and one of the sad points about going through Job so quickly is that we miss so much of the poetry. You really do need to read it slowly and again and again, and I've read it over the years in multiple translations, uh, and uh, you know, we're not a particularly poetic age, so we're not versed in letting poetry speak to us as poetry, and we're really not Hebrews. And so, I mean, we get the parallelism, and there's some passages that are really obvious, but you don't have to get very far into Job to realize that you're in deep, deep literary water. And it's fun to swim there, but we don't have time for that. But at least we can know that the, the subject matter and the mode of expression fit perfectly. Job couldn't be written as a prose work. It has to take us into the depths, and uh, it repays repeated readings, even if half the time you're scratching your head saying, 
Uh, I don't get it. And you wait for the next, oh, I get that. I understand. So I would commend to you, among other things, a lifetime of reading and studying and reflecting and looking at how it's been treated by some people who are experts in literary expression. But it is a powerful treatment of what has been called the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis, by others, the problem of evil. Simply stated, of course, that's how can a good God allow sin or ordain sin and sorrow in his creation and in the life of his people? If he can fix it, that is, if he's omnipotent, why doesn't he? And if he doesn't fix it, can we really say that God is good? John Milton, who was no slouch at trying to justify the ways of God to man himself, ranked the book of Job as among the greatest of all the literary products of the ancient world. The problem of evil isn't really a riddle that's posed by the existence of God. That's the way it's set forth by skeptics and, and uh, unbelievers. But it's a disaster that is brought about by human sin, which God is in the process of solving permanently and eternally. We don't wrestle intellectually merely with the problem of evil. We survive the problem of evil, and we become more than conquerors in the face of the problem of evil through God who loved us. And a book like Job is very helpful in that process. A third reason why readers find Job so attractive is that human beings feel universally a sense of helplessness in the face of, well, they might call it the gods, or cosmic forces, or for Bible readers, in the face of God, the God of Scripture, who so often seems mysterious, trying to understand. And so we're full of questions. Why this? And why that? Or why me? In the midst of a trial or a difficulty. The mystery of the hiddenness of God that arises often from the silence of God. I think that's why many non-believers like Job, because they like the way he keeps on asking the questions that they ask all the time. Sadly, they close their ears to the answers that are given not only in the book of Job, but in the rest of God's word. We can all identify with Job in his plight. Because we're whiners, uh, we're inclined to exalt any problem, any affliction, to a kind of a Job-like level, even though, if we're honest, we say, well, it's really not that bad. I mean, again, it's, isn't it? And I don't mean to minimize COVID, but we've spent a long time in the last several months maximizing COVID, as if, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. We have to wear a mask. Can you believe that? We have to wear a mask in a line to get food that we have. 
you know how many people in the world would line up in masks to eat what we eat in this dining hall? You see, we don't have much of a sense of proportion. So when you read about Job and you think about yourself, again, some of you may have sufferings that are nearly on the magnitude of Job's. But for most of us, we identify with him, but we realize that our situation isn't as drastic or dramatic as Job. We like to see ourselves as a righteous sufferer. I don't really deserve this. So-and-so deserves it, but not me. And then one last reason is that we would like to think that, you know, you listen to Job complain. There it is. It's in the Bible. I, there are times when I can actually complain to God. That's kind of a nice thought, isn't it? I feel ashamed when I'm complaining because i got a good theology, but I can't help but complain. And Job seems to, and as a matter of fact, we'll see that Job gives justification for crying out to God in lamentation. We may not call it a complaint, but that's what it is. The trick is to learn how to complain to God in the language of complaint that God gives to us. So that even our lamentations are an expression of faith growing through affliction. Well, if you're following the outline, I think I'm on major point two now. What about the particular usefulness of the book of Job to you? I've talked about kind of its general helpfulness or at least relevance, but, but how about you as you experience your trials and afflictions and try to understand what this great and mighty God is doing with you? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture breathed out by God is profitable for instruction, for reproof and correction. Those are kind of two sides of the same coin. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how to do it right. And for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, put that together with what James said. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. And so reading the scripture, letting the scripture do its God-appointed work upon us will teach us things that we need to know, correct sins and errors that need to be adjusted, and do it over and over and over over again until we develop those habits of mind and of heart, as well as outward behavior, that will move us towards that completeness, being thoroughly furnished for every good work. There's a lot of comforting or counseling going on in the book of Job, as people, not just Job, but others, try to understand what's going on and in turn try to help others in facing the problem of their suffering, of their affliction. There's lots of questions asked, lots of answers that are offered. Um, and we remind ourselves, again, jumping to a new covenant setting, that, that Paul reminds us that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, 
and he comforts us with a comfort that we can then extend to others who need to be comforted. So there's another dimension of this. As God teaches you through his word and through experience that comfort, that understanding, then you are obligated to pass that on to others. And I just think how often when we're faced with a Job-like situation in another, we don't know what to say, right? Because maybe the answers, like I said before, sound kind of cliche-ish, trite, and we don't want to we don't want to offer false comfort to somebody else as a suffering Job. But we need to be able to, again, depending on the conversation and the situation, this book will equip us for things genuinely helpful to say to others in the midst of their afflictions. As we observe the way in which this, that Job is counseled by the, the Lord, even though he doesn't get answers to all of his questions, we should be able to be able to pass that wisdom on to others as we help them experience their suffering. Job, in this counseling, this comforting that's going on, gives us both negative and positive examples of how to deal with affliction, both in our own experience and in dealing with others. Because the purpose of the book is to teach us wisdom, to discipline us in wisdom. And I would define wisdom just briefly as the godly skill, and it is a skill, it's not just information gathering, but it is taking the Word of God and an extensive experience of God's revelation and then through a lifetime applying the Word of God. So, you know, you read the book of Proverbs, for example, um, it doesn't reference the Torah, but it's full of the Torah, but not as law, but as a way of practically understanding and ethically, righteously living life in the real world. And that's why ordinarily wisdom is found in the aged rather than the young. Now, Elihu is going to be a counterexample at least a partial counterexample. But uh, you need a lifetime of experience applying the Word of God to millions and millions of situations and, and uh, trials and conundrums. What do we do here? What's the right thing? What's the wisest thing? What's actually doable or not doable? And that's what yields wisdom. And that's the point that Hebrews the latter part of Hebrews 12, not the little bit that we're going to talk about in the evening. Endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as his children. You know, he says not, discipline is never fun in the moment, but if we learn what God has in store for us, if we're trained by it, then it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So wisdom comes through the investigation and experience and the reflection upon experience uh, from the perspective of God's word. And Job is within that. We'll come back to this in a, in a minute when we talk about its place in the canon. 
but it is wisdom literature. It goes with Ecclesiastes and with Proverbs and with some of the Psalms. This book gives us access to the theological big picture without which we would never be able to adequately understand our suffering. An analysis of our experience simply in terms of our experience or human experience. You know what Ecclesiastes talks about? Life under the sun. Secularism. There is no God, or if there is, we don't know anything about him, so we just deal on a horizontal level. If we try to analyze and understand our afflictions, our suffering, what the meaning and the purpose is under the sun, then we will never be able to come to the right conclusion. We'll really end up where Koheleth, the preacher, is in the early part of the book. It's all transitory, everything changes, and it's often seemingly meaningless. So we really need the bigger picture, and Job gives us, as well as the rest of the Bible, that big picture. Faith, clinging to God's special revelation, takes us into heaven, into the very mind of God. In chapter 28 of Job, which is a kind of almost a standalone poem on the question of where is wisdom to be found, we're told that it can only be found in God. God is wise. God has a wise plan. He executes that plan in history. And if we want to learn wisdom, we've got to get in step with that plan. How do we access that plan? Only through the word of God, the special revelation of God. And it begins, as we so often read in Proverbs, with the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, the covenant Lord. So as we try to apply it to our own lives, the understanding God is going to He's not going to answer all of the why questions, but he's going to explain why answers to the why questions isn't the biggest answer that we need. And that even when God doesn't answer questions, God himself is the great answer that we need. And so we cling to God even though we don't understand sometimes what he's doing. A few other matters regarding background to the book of Job. And a word about its authority. Now, for this crowd, I could just say, it's in the Bible, and you say, okay, good enough. But it's worth thinking about why we would receive, or why our ancestors in the faith saw this as inspired scripture, and it had a place in the canon of the Old Testament. So we'll say a word about that. You know, in general introduction, you always have to ask about the date. There have been various suggestions ranging from the patriarchal period. Some of the more critical scholars want to put it in the post-exilic period um, at the time when the canon in its final form perhaps was forming. Jewish tradition favors an early date. And most of the arguments for a late date for the book of Job are really unconvincing. There's no good reason 
Uh, unless you're just a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic, there's no good reason not to believe that Job comes from the very early period in redemptive history. Uh, some of you probably have noticed, reading in Ezekiel chapter 14, that three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, are mentioned as historical figures in the mind of the prophet Ezekiel. There's other internal evidence, uh, setting, cultural details, Job's function as a kind of a priest within his own family, all of that is uh, consonant with the patriarchal age um, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Job's extended lifespan points in that direction. Um, and so there are internal reasons why we would conclude that the book is early. That doesn't mean that it may not have been put in its current final form by some further act of special revelation at the time by an editor, uh, at the time perhaps when it was included in the canon. It does bear some marks of a, of a Solomonic world as well. Again, Solomon is the chief character in the Old Testament identified with wisdom. And this material, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, some of the, the Psalms, and their final uh, association as a kind of sub-canon, the writings, uh, all stem from that Solomonic period. And so there may be, because again, remember, Job didn't write Job, at least we were not told that he wrote it. Somebody wrote it about Job, and then somebody put it into its final form. None of that undermines our view of inspiration. I don't think because God superintends the whole process from initial authorship to inclusion in the canon and then the preservation of the canon for us through all of these centuries. Another interesting feature uh, is that the name Shaddai, the Almighty, appears over 30 times in the book of Job. That's a high incidence. And if you remember, the Lord told Moses that he had appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And so even in the Pentateuch, the incidence of the covenant name, Yahweh, and Shaddai, that earlier designation of God Almighty, it's not a crisp editorial difference, but at least points in a different, in a in a, a way to the idea that very ancient special revelation was later then incorporated in light of everything that was learned from Moses on. So, for example, even in Genesis, you know, you get Elohim in Genesis one, and then without any explanation, you get to chapter two, and it's. Yahweh, the Lord. Well, that's an anachronism that has a purpose. Anyway, not too much uh, detail about that. But that, again, would point in the direction of something during the period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As to the setting, where did these events take place? We do not know. There's uh, a reference uh, to uh, the land of Uz. Uh, interesting parallel passage in Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom. 
you who live in the land of us. So if that's a, meant to be a, an exact parallel, that would put us in the region that was later identified with the descendants of Esau, or what we call Edom. Um, but we don't know. There have been suggestions that it might be in Egypt or Arabia or even in Palestine itself. Uh, uh, itself. But perhaps that identification with the region um, of later Edom is as good as any guess that we might have. Religiously, the details indicate that uh, a Hebraic setting and Israelite distinctiveness, though it's early. So Job may not be in that mainstream of the history of the patriarchs, but probably contemporaneous with that same era in redemptive history. But theologically, and this is important, Job is completely consistent with what the Torah says, the books of Moses say, about Yahweh, and what the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament say. And I emphasize that because the critics have always tried to chop the Old Testament into pieces, depending upon some of these features that don't need to be divided from one another. And uh, particularly if you're a young person and you end up in a secular university and some smart aleck freshman philosophy teacher is gonna tell you why everything you've ever been told about the Old Testament is, or about the Bible is rubbish, uh, you might be able to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Now you have to say it respectfully. I have to say it under your breath, but they don't know what they're talking about. So, as to literary structure, uh, here we consider the question of the integrity of the book. It was interesting. I got some Christmas money about two years back, three years back, and uh, some of you know the name Robert Alter. He is uh, an Old Testament scholar, or I don't know if he called himself an Old Testament scholar, but uh, he's written books on uh, the art of biblical Hebrew, the art of biblical narrative, and he started, he translated the Old Testament and published it in chunks um, by Books of Moses and uh, some of the life of David. Anyway, that year he finally finished the whole thing. And there was something really cheap on Amazon, big three volume thing, so I treated myself to that. So over the last two or three years, I've spent some of my private Bible reading, reading through his Commentary. Now he's completely sold out to secular, critical approach to the Old Testament. So on the one hand, uh, I think the translation is pretty good, but it's very different from kind of what we're used to for reasons you can ask me about it some other time. But then he's got all these footnotes, the commentaries and the footnotes. And I don't read all the footnotes, but every once in a while I'll jump down. And it's just interesting again to see that after all these hundreds of years, uh, the critics are still trying to just pick the Bible apart one piece at a time. And so one of the best things we can do for ourselves is remember again, and here again, you know this, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It comes from one author, and therefore its unity and its interconnectedness is assured. So, if something looks like it's disconnected, you don't understand it better. You don't understand it well enough yet. Remember the old sign, rule number one, the boss is always right? 
Rule number two, if the boss appears to be wrong, see rule number one. The Bible is always unified. It is always the word of God. If it looks like it's just nonsense, go back to rule one. It's God's word. We have to be humble learners, not standing over the scripture like these critics chopping it into pieces. See, I'm already down the slide. Um, what else about literary structure? All right, so the form that we now have it uh, does show some marks of later, perhaps, editorial work um, that brings it then into this world of wisdom literature. So it, it's not only connected in the Hebrew canon, but you read things in Job that sound an awful lot like Proverbs. You read things in Proverbs that sound like Job. You read the Ecclesiastes, even though they have different messages, different emphases. Which leads me then to one final point about the authority. The wisdom literature of Scripture, while evidencing a kind of humanness, if you will, now that's, I shouldn't even put it that way, because the human authorship of the Bible is evident throughout. And we don't take anything away from that by emphasizing that it is God-breathed. But the way the sages, the wise men, come to their understanding and express themselves seems so different, let's say, from a Moses standing on Mount Sinai talking to God, or even a psalmist expressing something out of his own inward spiritual experience that is also special revelation. These are a bunch of old guys, let's say, sitting around, swapping stories about life experience, posing questions or challenges to one another, and, and working it out, and then coming to conclusions. And in writing those conclusions, we have the word of God himself. That's what I mean by the mode of revelation being very, very different from what we're used to in the law and often in the prophets where the revelation seems to come on a much more direct and non-negotiable level. So in that sense, probably wisdom is closer to the Psalms, more subjective than God said, write this down. Thus says the Lord and the prophet uh, writes it down and passes it on to us. It reflects investigation, evaluation, conclusions then that are stated often in memorable form. And of course, Proverbs is the great example of that. Somebody said the Proverbs are like hard candy. You know, you read them and many of them seem sort of, well, duh. But you pop them in your mouth and you suck on them for a while. And oh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the old jawbreakers, you know, you, they change color as they get smaller and smaller as you suck through the different layers of them. So, yeah, it may look really simple on the surface. That's what wisdom is supposed to do, to plant a seed in your head that's going to resonate. And Job is very different from Proverbs, but it's trying to do that same thing. So when we think about authority, in the New Testament, canonicity belonging to the inspired collection is tied to apostolicity. That is, does it have some, is it written by an apostle or does it have a direct connection with apostles? In the Old Testament, it's a little vaguer than that, 
But I would say the connection with Solomon, the king, and the Solomonic era establishes the provenance of a book like Job so that we could say, yeah, this belongs right in there next to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's not some swept up leavings off the cutting room floor that just kind of gets stuck in the end. So again, we can be confident. We can think about our commitments to the Bible and come away saying, this is solid ground to stand on. And again, I emphasize that because I'm finding an awful lot of Christians that are getting real weak need about the Bible. The only way that you can dare suggest that the Bible may be wrong in what it says about sexuality is if you don't really believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. Again, if it's God-breathed, then if you think it might be wrong, then you're wrong. It's just that simple. Or even, and here's another thing, so in my old age uh, and reading through the Bible, I think about, I don't know whether I like this, what I'm reading here, as much as I did when I was younger. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. You know, in life, when God flat out wipes out multitudes of people, when I was young, I, I just, yeah, stick it to them, they deserve it. <laughs> and they did. But the justice of God is a painful thing. So, the more firmly rooted we are in our commitment to Scripture, and that's why the Westminster Confession begins with the Bible. It could begin with God, it could begin with Christ, begins with the Bible because if we lose our confidence in the scripture, we have lost it all. It's just a matter of time how long it takes before that next domino falls. All right, I think I am, so here's what we're gonna try and do then. Here's the scope of our present study. How does that sound? We'll talk first about the framework of Job's story Look at those background realities that help us understand the actual events of the narrative. We'll do that, Lord willing, in the next session. And then we'll talk about the failure of Job's friends to help him in the midst of his suffering. Um, and here it's the idea of how unhelpful a mixture of truth and error turns out to be. And then we'll talk about um, Elihu. Uh, that's probably, oh, yeah, that's something else I was going to just mention as a parenthesis. I'm giving you my best reading of this book, but I am no expert on the book. And I freely admit that if you go to the commentaries, um, you'll find differences of opinion by people who are theologically agreed with one another. And the one place that's going to surface is, has to do with Elihu. Where does he fit? Some people say he doesn't fit at all. Some people say he's an arrogant young so-and-so, and I'm gonna argue that he's the setup man for Yahweh's appearance himself. But you'll find people that can disagree with that, so that's just, uh, but I don't think that's gonna, that um, difference of opinion isn't gonna affect our overall understanding. And then, of course, we will come to God's appearance 
as Job's final helper and uh, discover again why he is called Wonderful Counselor, as well as Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And Jesus Christ is all over the book of Job. You know, God is all over the book of Esther, even though God is never mentioned in Esther. The Messiah isn't mentioned directly, a little indirectly, in Job, but Jesus is everywhere in this book. Jesus, after all, is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That describes Job, but Jesus is a greater than Job. We think about Jesus' sufferings under the heading of his passive obedience, that is, the things that he suffered in our place. We deserve the suffering. And so Jesus took it, and that's certainly true. But Jesus is also an authentic man of faith. And so, as such, his faith had to be deepened and extended through the things that he suffered. And that's exactly what Hebrews says about him. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so as we learn about Job, we're going to learn something about Jesus' own life experience, which is to say then we're going to learn about our own life experience in union with Christ. So there we are. One down, six and a half to go. Let's just pray real quick and then you can go out and have a snack. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of bringing these words to your people. Thank you for their attention. I look at them, they're making eye contact, they're uh, nodding or puzzled or whatever that shows that they really want to hear, not from me, but from you. And we ask that you will continue to bless us throughout this week as we live in this magnificent book for a little while. When we come out the other side, oh Lord, may we be different people than we are going in because of your grace. 